2 Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. I really do love the time we have when I can read to the kids. And they're, they're children. Some are smaller than others. Some understand more than others. And the point is, and the expectation is not that every child is paying close attention because children are easily distracted. Children don't understand everything that's going on. But here's the importance of bringing your children to church. Here's the importance of doing story time every week. Here's the importance of preaching the gospel every week because we're not looking for a quick fix. We're not looking at what story time is going to do for your child today. We're looking at what story time, what the preaching of the gospel, what these things that are parts of their life, consistent parts of their life, how those things are molding and shaping them over the course of many years. And I always tell people, don't underestimate your children. They are much smarter than you think they are. They retain much more than you realize they do, even at the very youngest of age. You know that when a child is in the womb, that child is listening to the voice of its mother, of its father, and the people around, and children in the womb are learning language. These things don't just happen when they come out, and they're old enough to comprehend. This is the miracle of life. And so we do these things consistently because in the long run, consistently, they will begin to mold and shape and take root. So, thank you parents for bringing your children. Don't worry whether they seem like they're paying close attention or getting it. It's okay. We will consistently do what we do. We will consistently preach the gospel. We will consistently teach these things. And we do this together. And so, be consistent. Provide consistency in your child's life provide consistency in those things that are rooted and grounded in the truth and who God is. Provide consistency in the gospel and your children will grow and they will flourish. Doesn't mean they won't have hiccups. Doesn't mean that they won't have bumps in the road. They will. But equip them from the very youngest of age and they will be well equipped for their lives. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. I'm going to read to you verse 12 through 22. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I have covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it, will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore he has brought all this calamity on them. Father, I ask that you would today open each heart and each mind. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Lord, create in us hearts that are good soil for the good word of your gospel to be planted, to grow and to flourish, and to manifest and make known Christ to a lost and dying world. Father, we ask that you would do this by your spirit and that you would do it for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go back to verse 12, where we're going to go verse by verse through these, this portion of Scripture. God says, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now remember, the subject of the Bible really is one thing. It is Jesus Christ. We often look at the Bible as an instruction book. We have this... this uh, acronym B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, but the Bible is much more than an instruction book. The Bible really is a window. The Bible is a window that we look through and are able to see Christ. And so the Bible is not just a book of rules and regulations for you to live by. The Bible is God's holy inspired word that has been given to us so that we could see Jesus. That means everything God did from the very beginning when he said, let there be light, to the very last amen in the Bible that, that causes us to have images of the return of the Lord Jesus. Everything recorded in scripture from the very beginning to the very end is recorded there so that we would be able to see Jesus. Because Jesus is the point. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only 
one, the only Savior. And so when God created, um, or when God caused Solomon to build the temple, so before Solomon's temple, there was not a temple. There was a tabernacle. It was called the Tent of Meeting. He had Moses build the tabernacle. And for centuries, they had this tabernacle. David had a heart to build a house for God, but God didn't allow David to build the house. He said, your son Solomon will build it. And Solomon builds the temple, and it's at the dedication of this temple, the first temple, that is the context of these scriptures that we're reading. And so, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Go over to hold your place there and go to John's gospel. And let's look at the words of Jesus. Now, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. Bar none. You can read men's notes. You can read commentaries. That's fine. That can be helpful. But when it's all said and done... The best interpretation for the Bible is the Bible. The book you should study most, the book you should meditate on most, the book you should be most focused on is the Scripture because the Scripture will give you the answer to what the Scripture is saying. So we come to John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19. Look at this. Now, let's see, let me find it. Let me get to the right chapter, 219. Look at verse 18. And the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He said this while he was in the temple. He's teaching in the temple. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Here's the Bible interpreting the Bible. Verse 21, He, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had been risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. If we take a rough calculation of time and we say Jesus was crucified, let's just let's say 33 AD, 37 to 40 years later, 70 AD, if he's, if he's crucified in 33 AD, 37 years later in 70 AD, that temple was torn down. And from 70 AD until today, that temple has not been rebuilt. Yet men are still looking for a temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt, but the Bible shows us that the temple that God had always eternally purposed, the temple that God said He would raise up, the temple that no man could build, God raised it up in three days. So when, go back to Second Chronicles, when God says, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, as New Testament believers 
who have the words of Jesus, who know that Jesus is, has been resurrected, that he is the temple that God raised up in three days. He tore that temple of Solomon's down through the Babylonians. It was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah, and he used the Romans to tear it down in 70 AD, 37 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of his son. And that temple over in Jerusalem is still a blank spot on the earth. But the temple, the true temple, has been raised up, has ascended to the Father, rules and reigns. And the body of that temple is in the earth today. It's not in a piece of ground in Jerusalem. It is scattered throughout the world. It is called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now hang with me and I'll give you some scripture to, to, to help you understand this. So Jesus is the temple that was torn down and rebuilt in three days. And the temple of Jesus' body is the chosen house whose house we are. This is what Hebrews 3, 6 says. We are God's house. And Jesus is the sacrifice. So this picture that's given to us here that we see in 2 Chronicles, remember, everything in the Old Testament, these are signposts pointing us to who? Pointing us to Jesus. Let there be light was more than just a sun that shines on the earth. Let there be light is a signpost that points us to the true light that would one day come into the earth. His name is Jesus. Paul references this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says the same God who shone a light out of the darkness in the natural creation is the same God who has shone a light in your heart. So light shining out of the natural darkness of creation was just a type and a shadow that God would one day shine his true light in your dark heart and give you light to see and eyes to see by that light. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Look at verse 13. When I Notice God doesn't say, if I. He says, when I. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain. When I command the locusts to devour the land. When I send pestilence among the people. God in his justice will bring judgment upon a land because of the sin and the wickedness of the people. That wasn't just something that happened in that day. That is something that is happening today. We just finished a 10-year drought. You think that was an accident? You know, so what about all this rain we've been having? It's called the grace of God. But God in His grace does not leave us without hope when He shuts up heaven, when he commands the locusts, when he sends pestilence among the people. He has made a way where there was no way. In Christ, he has opened a way for us into the very presence of the Father, to the very throne of grace. This is what Hebrews 4.16 
communicates for us, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. These scriptures speak about, of, our, of our ability to come to God because God made a way for us to come. Now in Christ, we do not have to continue in sin. Do you realize that before Jesus saves you, you have no choice but to live in sin. Before Christ saves you, you don't have a choice as to whether you sin or don't sin. Before Christ saves you, you are sin. That's what the Bible says. Sin is not what you do. Sin is who you are. Now, we're doing a a really, really important and good study on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock called The Doctrines of Grace in the book of John. And we just had a phenomenal message today that deals with this. And you think of the order of creation. Why, Why are you sin when you are born? The answer to that question is the same answer to this question. Why are you human when you're born? Because your parents were human. Our ultimate first parents, Adam and Eve, were human, therefore we are human. Well, guess what? Our ultimate first parents were sinful. They were fallen, therefore we are sinful. We are fallen. Sin is not defined by what you do. Sin is defined by who you are in your birth, in your natural birth. We want to define sin based on what we call good or evil. Well, this person's good, this person's evil. Hitler's evil, but Roosevelt is good. I'm sorry, some of you probably didn't even get that. Because we don't know history today. But you understand what I'm saying? That's not what determines good and evil. The quality of someone's life doesn't determine good or evil. Good or evil is determined inherently. It's it's the nature we're born with. Consequently, we're born evil. We're born in sin. What is the cure? Jesus, John 3, 3. You must be born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, a man cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. So the solution, the answer to the problem for sinners is not they need to try harder. It's not they need to go to church more. It's not they need to read their Bibles more. It's not they need to... It's not that. Sinners aren't going to save themselves by trying harder. The only solution is they must be born again. So Christ has made a way for us to be free from the bondage of sin and the lust that is in this world. He's made a way. He's made it possible by His grace that's given to us in Jesus Christ. When we're born again, we are set free from sin. Now as a new creation, now as a child of God, 
I am free from sin. I can choose to obey God. I can choose to rebel against God. I can choose to walk free from sin by God's grace. Not that we will ever walk perfectly. We won't. Because remember, God's God's requirement is not being pretty good. God's requirement is absolute perfection. Absolute, untainted holiness. You and I can never be that. There was only one man that ever achieved that. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus walked in utter holiness, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect sinlessness. Jesus did that. So when Adam was created and put on the earth, you understand that Adam was not meant to be the one who would walk in perfect sinlessness. So Jesus wasn't plan B. The cross wasn't plan B. The cross is, was, and will always be the eternal plan of God. Adam came so that Jesus could come. And it was Jesus, not Adam, that God knew would work, would walk in perfect holiness. So what do we do today? We've been given the privilege to call upon God. To humble ourselves. So what happens when the consequence of sin overtakes our life? Verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God is instructing His people, called by His name, not the people of the world, not unbelievers. God is not telling unbelievers to humble themselves and pray. God is telling the believers to humble themselves and pray. As the church, we need to get that right. We need to understand that. Stop pointing fingers at the world. Stop condemning the world. They're already condemned. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He said, the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why? He says it right there, because the world was already condemned. When Jesus came, the world was already under condemnation. When did that condemnation fall upon the world? It fell upon the world in the garden. God pronounced it upon Adam. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save, because the world was already condemned. The church has a bad habit of pointing fingers at the world as if the world needs to do something different. Well, they do. They need to get saved. But the world is sinful because they are, in their core, in their nature, they are darkness. Ephesians 5.8, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You can't point to the dark and make it become light. But God can. You were dark. I was dark once. I was darkness. But God, in his mercy, by his power, caused me to become light in the Lord. Now that I am light in the Lord, the Bible commands me, walk as children of light. And so I'm not pointing a finger at the world going, if you guys would just become light and stop being darkness, 
they cannot. Not only can they not, they don't desire it. So what, what do we do? Here's what we do right here. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. God says, hey, my people, those of you who once were darkness that I have made light in the Lord, if my people, if the light will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, because we can do that now by the grace of God, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Did you notice that when the drought ended in Texas, it ended for everybody? Did you notice, I don't know, maybe you didn't, but I did, that it didn't just rain on the homes and the land of the believers, but it rained on everybody. When the drought was in full force, guess what? Guess whose land was dry? Everybody's land was dry. All the believers that drank water from the highland lakes, they drank the water just like the unbelievers did. All the people that used to go out there and enjoy the lake and there was no water in the lake, didn't matter whether they were believers or unbelievers. God didn't fill the lake up for the believers, then let it drain out for the unbelievers. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. And when God's people will humble themselves and pray, God will bring healing to the land, and that healing is going to come, and the believer and the unbeliever are going to benefit from the healing. But I want you to understand something. It is God who has commanded the believer to humble themselves and pray, the believer to turn from their wicked ways. We could use the word church. If my church, who is called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God is instructing his people called by his name. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34. That scripture is recorded in James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. 1 Peter goes on and Peter writes, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil. And, or James writes, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God. Oh, we don't like the word submit today. In our culture, we hate that word. But it's not just in our culture today. Sinful man hates that word. And the only one sinful man wants to submit to is himself. The only will sinful man wants to submit to is his own will. Have you ever noticed that people do pretty much what they want to do? And people come up with all kinds of excuses for all kinds of things. But in the end, people ultimately will do what they want to do. Man will submit to somebody. The question is, who is he going to submit to? And if we belong to Jesus, if we are no longer darkness but have become light in the Lord, 
the Bible says that we are to submit to God. Or Peter writes it this way. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We are his people called by his name, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the name of Jesus that he has given to be the name above every name. So willingly or not, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. There's a lot of people who don't believe that. There's a lot of people who believe this book is just a myth, who believe just a bunch of guys sitting around the campfire getting stoned wrote this myth. I used to believe that. And I felt really stupid when I began to actually understand how the Bible was written. And when I realized that there is more proof that this book is valid and reliable than any book on the face of this earth, bar none, recent or not. But here's the thing, church. Even having all that evidence and all that proof means absolutely nothing because that's not going to save you. It's not can we give people enough evidence to believe in Jesus because you're not saved by evidence, by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. That means until God does something in your heart, you have no hope. This is why it is so important for the church to pray. Because the church needs to be praying that people's hearts would be softened. That God would move on the hearts of men and women. That God would save them. God has given this privilege to the church. God has given to the church the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the power of God to salvation. God has chosen that through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of the gospel, through the living of the gospel, you would be saved. And so God has entrusted to his people, to his church, the gospel. This is why it's important for you to learn the gospel, to know the gospel. So that your life will become gospel-centered. So that your speech will become gospel-centered. So that your thinking will become gospel-centered. That you'll begin to look at the world differently. That you'll see it through the eyes of the gospel. And not through your own eyes. Or the eyes of the culture. Or the eyes of what is popular today. But that we look through eyes from an eternal perspective. So God says to his people, this is your privilege. It is your responsibility. God's not calling the world to prayer. He's calling the church to prayer. And he's calling the church to repent of her sin. That means he's calling me to repent of my sin. And he's calling you to repent of your sin. 
He's calling everyone to repent of their sin. (laughs) In reality, but not everyone is going to repent of their sin. God promises to hear his people called by his name, not the world who has rejected his name. Then he says in verse 15, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. The church is the holy habitation. Paul calls the church a holy temple in the Lord, being built up together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. The chosen place God has promised to see and to hear the prayers of His people. That's us. We are the place God has chosen for His name to dwell forever. The church, the people of God, is the place He's chosen for His name to dwell forever. In the people of God, God has promised to see and to hear your prayers. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter uses this language and he describes the people of God, the church of God, As this temple, he likens them to the very temple that existed in his day before it was destroyed by the Romans. And he says to the church, you are the place. You are the place where spiritual sacrifices will be offered up. It's not that big rock sitting there in Jerusalem. It's not that. It is living stones. You have been cut out of that rock. That living stone, you are living stones being built up into this holy habitation, into this house of God. You are this royal, holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we call upon his name in humble repentance, we have the blessed assurance that he will hear us. Do you believe that, church? And when we look at verse 14 there, what is it that we are calling upon him for? Now, there's nothing wrong with bringing your problems and your needs to God. You should bring them to God. That's the very first place you should take them. But I want you to also understand that as the people of God, we have a responsibility. We've been put in the earth for a purpose. And we are a body of intercessors, in a sense. Jesus is the great mediator. He is our intercessor. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But right here we see where God says to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. How many of you complain about our nation? How many of you are complaining about the choice of candidates we have for president. Not just this cycle, but how many of you are upset with your congressman, your, your, your representative, your senator? How many of you watch the news, read the newspaper, and grumble and complain about the condition 
of our nation. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Start praying. Stop looking at everybody else and everything else and do what God says. Humble yourself. Pray. Turn from your wicked way. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not going to throw any rocks at anybody here. But for me, I got plenty of things I can humble myself and pray about and seek God's face about and turn away from and ask God to have grace and mercy on me. This is what the church has been instructed to do, commanded to do. And God says, if you do that, I will hear. He's given us a promise. He says in verse 16, I've chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. We did not choose to be God's house. God chose and sanctified us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. You should write these scriptures down and go back and read them. God chose us in Christ to be his house, that his name will be there in us forever, and his eyes and his heart will be there in us perpetually. God promises to never leave or forsake us. Deuteronomy 31.6, that's recorded in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. How does God love you? He loves you in Jesus Christ. He doesn't love you apart from Jesus Christ. He loves you in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, there is nothing, the Bible says, that can separate you from God's love. Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the house of God. He has chosen us and sanctified us in Christ. Therefore, we are to walk before him humble and holy, knowing that it is only by his grace that we can do so. As for you, if you walk before me, God says, I will bless. We are to walk before him as the holy nation we have become in Christ. But we are utterly dependent upon his grace, not only to walk, but even to come into his presence. There are conditions in the covenant, but God's keeping of his covenant is rooted in his grace in Jesus Christ. Not in the works of man. In other words, God will keep his promise, not because you have earned that right for him to keep it, not because you keep it. God will keep that promise because he cannot break his word. 
And that keeping of the covenant and God keeping his promises is founded upon the grace of God, not the works of man. By grace, Solomon and the kings of Israel were given the choice to obey or rebel. And so in that choosing, they could enjoy or they could suffer the consequences of their choices. And you go back and you read the history of Israel and you see times when the kingdom experienced glory. And you see many more times, though, when the kingdom suffered the judgment of God because of the wickedness in the rebellious heart of sinful men. What they could not do, though, was practice an obedience that would negate the need for God's grace. God didn't give His Holy Spirit so that you would have more power to be more obedient. And out of that power, you could achieve perfection in and of yourself. No. We can never walk and attain to a measure of obedience that will negate our need for the grace of God. There's only one man and one king who is able to walk in that measure of perfect obedience with perfect righteousness before God, and that is Jesus Christ. And it is that name that you must put your trust in. It is that man, it is that king, it is that Savior that you must trust in to have any hope. There is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. Jesus is not a way, he is the way. A lot of people today don't like that. I can't do anything about that. I didn't say that about Jesus. Jesus said that about himself I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except through me period are you trusting Jesus do you see your need for a savior until you can see your sin you will never know the salvation that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. So we're going to get ready and we're going to come to the table now. And as we come to the table, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus. This isn't about having all your questions answered. This isn't about putting away all your doubts. And having everything packed up in a real neat package so that you can connect all the dots you want to connect. And this is about knowing one thing and one thing only that without Jesus, I'm hopeless. And though I don't understand everything, and though God is a mystery to me, something inside of me tells me that if I'm not trusting in Jesus, I have no hope in this life or the next. And so the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Call upon his name. He will not put you to shame. So from a heart of faith, if you have never, I invite you to call upon Jesus now. To trust in Jesus. And as you trust in Jesus, come to the table.